Well then, with a view to the health of God, now let's uh, turn to that passage from 2 Kings and chapter 5. And the very last sentence at the end of verse 27, where we read concerning Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, that he went out from Elijah's presence, leprous, as white as snow. He went out from his presence, a leper, white as snow. Now, of course, uh, last Lord's Day evening, as I mentioned, we saw Naaman healed. And we saw him healed, of course, from a twofold leprosy. We saw him healed from the leprosy that was in his body, which was, of course, uh, slowly killing him. We also saw him healed from the more serious inward leprosy that he had. And his external leprosy was used here by God, as was so often so in the Bible, it was used as a symbol of the inward leprosy, which is, of course, the sin of his soul. And that, of course, was killing him spiritually too, just as sin is killing all of ourselves, whether we realize it or not. But we saw that um, after washing in the Jordan as God had commanded him to, because of course God had spoken to him through the prophet Elijah. After washing in the Jordan seven times, we saw that his skin was renewed, so much so that it was like the skin of a newborn child. And that of course is a fitting symbol for someone who has been thoroughly washed by God, regenerated, generated again, given a new birth. Because here again his outward condition becomes a symbol of what is true on the inside. Just as was the case when he was leprous, that was a figure of his spiritual leprosy, so now his skin, as the skin of a newborn child, is a fitting symbol of a man who has been born again. And of course, um, he has become essentially like a little child. The new birth is compared with that. The Lord Jesus himself makes that comparison, that except we humble ourselves to become as little children, we shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the Lord requires that humility of heart um, that belongs to a child. Uh, Naaman is washed inwardly and outwardly. He becomes a believer. And it's no surprise that he immediately shows uh, the characteristics or the marks, if you like, of a believer. Uh, the first one of these, in a way, is humility, because he suddenly uh, speaks to Elijah as someone who feels himself inferior to Elijah, because he actually refers to himself as your servant, that is, Elijah servant. Now, that's very far removed from the man who wouldn't come down from his horse and he wouldn't go anywhere near Elijah's house, if you remember from last Sabbath night. He came down from Syria as a proud man. He took millions of pounds worth of gifts with him, not as gifts at the time, but to purchase his healing. And he was insulted by Elijah's apparent unwillingness to come out of the house and to wave his hand over his leprosy and to heal it. He was insulted by all that. But just notice the change. He starts to speak of himself as your servant when he speaks to Elijah. Now there's no doubt, friends, that the grace of God humbles a person. And if we see a man or a woman that hasn't been humbled, we see a man or a woman that has not come to faith. The Lord makes us to realize our unworthiness before God. And when, when he really breaks into our lives, especially for the first time, we, we really feel that. We, we are definitely uh, no more worthy than anybody else. In fact, we feel ourselves to be 
less worthy than anybody of the grace of God. And it's no wonder that he suddenly speaks of this Israelite as his own master. So that's one mark of faith. The other mark of faith is that he's suddenly full of questions. These questions have to do with worship. And it's no surprise because he's going back to Syria where he doesn't know any believers except the little servant girl who had been the means of bringing him into contact with Elijah in the first place. He says to Elijah, when I, when I go home, can I take two donkey loads of earth, of soil from Israel with me so that when I worship I can uh, build an altar and go on my knees on Israelite soil? Now, that seems to us a very foolish question, and we forget that many of our own questions are quite foolish when we start off in the Christian life. Nobody's the complete package when they're born again. The reason why that is so is obvious, because they've only just been born. Nobody has full maturity and full understanding when they're born. And he somehow feels that to worship this God properly means that he can't do so on Syrian soil. He's got to take Israelite soil with him. That's one thing. And then, following hot on the heels of that, there's another question tumbling out. He's, he he realises that his master will be going to the house of Ruben to worship. And he will be leaning on his hand. And he says, well, essentially, what will happen? Can I, can I have forgiveness if, if I appear to be bowing in the house of the idol when I, I don't want to bow in the house of the idol at all. To these two questions, Elijah simply says, go in peace. You may say that's a strange response. In some ways it is, because actually in the Hebrew, it's even more uh, difficult to pin down than it is in the English. It's pretty much a way of saying goodbye, actually. That's all it is in the Hebrew. Uh, when we say goodbye, that's a shortened form of God be with you. Goodbye, God be with you. Uh, that's really what Elijah says. In other words, Elijah doesn't answer either of his questions. <clears throat> we would like to say you don't need earth uh, to worship God. You don't need Israelite soil. We would also like to say that he needs to thoroughly think out the consequences <coughs> of even appearing to worship in the temple. Elijah doesn't take anything to do with either. The reasons for that is very simple. These two questions will soon become 200 questions. They'll soon become 2,000 questions. And there's nobody in Syria to really help him think these things through. Except the Lord himself. And he'll have to learn to have the guidance and the blessing of God in his life, in his home, and in his job. And maybe he'll only have the little girl uh, from Israel. To help him. But Elijah is effectively saying go. The Lord who has had mercy on you. And who has brought you to life. Must be your teacher. And you must look to him for your guidance. And for your help. And as you look to him for that guidance and help. God will indeed send it to you. What confidence Elijah had in God. What confidence he had in God's power. To take his own child. And to lead him on even without many teachers or helps being available. And it's important for ourselves to remember these things too. You know, when somebody is converted, they are in the hands of the Lord. The Lord will take them on. It's not our task to try and just press everything we can into their minds all the time and beyond their case, because the Lord will be their teacher. Most certainly he may use yourself and myself in that process, but... As Elijah teaches us here, God has the ultimate responsibility for bringing his own children to a better and a deeper knowledge of himself. But questions, questions. We, we, we're all full of them, especially when it, comes to, uh, to, uh, when it comes to people who are just converted. That's a good thing. And let me encourage you to ask them. And as the Lord leads those you're dealing with, these questions will be answered. Sometimes they may say, well, I can't answer that. Fair enough. In God's good time, he may well lead you to the answer. So there's humility of heart, there's the questions of the new convert, and there is, of course, the thankfulness. Because, as I said earlier, he took the gifts originally, 
because he wanted to buy this Cuban. He wasn't going to be indebted to a Nisalite, wasn't going to be indebted to a Christian or to a minister of the gospel. Anything he got from these people, he would buy. But it's also different now. And when he's healed, he's, he's so full of it. He loves the Lord's people, and he loves the Lord's messengers. We can well remember that ourselves as a, as a huge change in our lives. Loving the Lord's people and loving the Lord's messengers. And he urges Elijah to take some at least of the gifts that he brought. You'll remember somewhere between one million and two million pounds worth of gifts. But in spite of urging these gifts on Elisha, Elisha persists in refusing them. And however much Naaman urges them, so Elisha refuses them. Now he has a reason, or he has reasons for refusing these gifts, which we'll come to a little bit later on. But the point for now is that he simply refuses them. And so Naaman returns, makes his way to return back to Syria and back to his post. But, and actually, when I'm saying the word but, uh, but there's a but in verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman this Syria. And here we're introduced really to the fourth character that dominates this particular incident. There was the young girl, young woman from uh, Israel. There's Naaman himself, there is Elisha, and now there is the fourth character, and that is Gehazi, Elisha's servant. And the sad fact is that this whole narrative here is not simply about salvation coming to somebody who's miles away from the gospel and all its privileges. It's actually also about somebody who's very close to these privileges rejecting them and being condemned as a result. Uh, Jesus spoke about the last being first. And he also spoke about the first being last. Jesus spoke about people coming from the east and the west and the north and the south and pouring into the kingdom of heaven. But in the same breath he spoke about those who were heirs of the kingdom of heaven themselves being cast out. He spoke of the Gentiles coming in to enjoy what they never had and the Jews rejecting what they had grown up with ever since they were children. These are not just historical incidents, they are spiritual principles that keep on repeating themselves in the history of peoples and nations and the world. That those who are close to good things and who have become very used to them, for ourselves, people who have been baptised into the Christian church, perhaps even raised in godly homes, have moved away from these things. And Sometimes even people like that themselves can see other people overtaking them. Who came from nowhere, who had nothing, no background, no catechism, no Sabbath school. Nothing like that at all. And lo and behold, they hear the gospel and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe there are examples of both these in front of me as I preach tonight. Some of you are possibly sitting very close to those who are running ahead of you when they were once miles behind you. If Naaman is an example of the last being first, Gehazi is an example of the first being last. There's a leper healed. There is a, a healthy person becoming a leper. And, and both these things have to be taken together. You can't just look at Naaman and forget Gehazi. Somebody here is cleansed. Somebody else is made sick. And both these are obviously important. Just as Naaman's external condition was a mirror of what was true inside, 
leprosy outside, leprosy inside. Flesh like a child outside, the heart of a child inside. So is true with Gehazi. When he becomes a leper, that is now a reflection of the real state of this man's soul. And who'd have thought on the morning when Naaman arrived that this is how the day would end? Who'd have thought it? Here's a servant of God, an heir of heaven. Here's the commander of the Syrian army, an heir of hell. By the time the day's out, the roles are absolutely reversed. It's well worthwhile, friends, thinking about this more closely. And Let's consider three things in connection with Gehazi. I want to, first of all, consider with you his privilege, just very briefly. Then, a little more fully, his sin. And, last of all, his punishment. Now, first of all, his privilege. Well, I've more or less touched on that really already. He is himself a child of the covenant. He has been born and raised in the most privileged nation on the face of the earth. God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel to make a, a light to shine in a dark world so that other nations would look on and desire to be associated with her and to be part of her to identify with her worship, and even to bring her laws into their own kingdoms and into their own lives. And to them, of course, as Paul says, were given the priesthood, which symbolised Christ. They were given a temple, which also symbolised Christ in all his offices, prophet, priest and king. They were given the glory, which is a reference to the glory cloud that dwelt inside the tabernacle first and later in the temple. As long as that was there, that was a reminder to this nation that God's presence was in their midst. It's not a wonderful thought, you know. You're, you're amazed in a way to think that a nation could slide and degenerate when the presence of God was in their midst and they knew it was there. In that ornate building, the glory of which did not lie in its gold or in its silver or in its ivory or in its marble, but the glory of which lay in the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory of God that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant amongst the cherubim, enclosed in the Holy of Holies, a, a cubic structure, ten by ten. God was there. What a privilege that was full Bible, a priesthood, a temple, and a glory. Now as a nation, we can't come up to that, can we? But I'll tell you what we can come up to. The only three nations that covenanted themselves ever to the Reformed faith were Scotland, England, and Ireland. In the 17th century, the leaders of all these nations stood and covenanted themselves to God. In the House of Commons, in the House of Lords, in the Scottish Parliament before the Union, leaders of church, leaders of state, all stood and swore to the preservation of the Reformed faith and its propagation in this land. That's a height to which no other country attained in this world except these three. We're prone to forget that. But the National Covenant of 1638 and the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643 are high watermarks of where we were as a reformed nation. Now, we may have forgotten these things. God has not forgotten these things. And God does not expect us to forget these things. Covenant obligations pass on from one generation to the other. And that's the land in which you and I have been born. And it may be sliding and falling away, and we all know it is. We painfully know it is. But the vestiges of that are with us. Not only that, but in these islands, most of us can say that we have been born or raised in the bosom of the church itself, that we have received the truths of God since our childhood. Many of us have had the privilege of having Christian mothers or fathers or Christian grandmothers or grandfathers or aunties or uncles we have known what it is to have Christians 
in our life experience, whether at school or college or at work. These are privileges. They are serious privileges, which will either tell for us or will count against us, depending, of course, on what we do with them. We are awash with Bibles, with psalm books, with catechisms, and with good Christian interest, uh, literature. Now, this man, Gehazi, obviously had an interest in spiritual things um, from quite an early age. He was certainly enrolled by Elijah or Elisha in the School of the Prophets. Now, the School of the Prophets was a special um, institution set up to keep, keep the faith in the land when the priesthood was becoming corrupt. And the priesthood was becoming corrupt. And this man, Gehazi, rose up to the point where he became Elisha's personal assistant. And to understand the importance of that, I think it's enough to say that you need to remember that Elijah himself was Elijah's personal assistant. So, so that tells you who Gehazi was, tells you something about his ability, it tells you perhaps something about what he was thought of. And you know, we can't help but think that it's astonishing that a man who rose to that could fall to this. It's astonishing, really. It's hard to compute. It's, it's as hard to compute as in the case of Judas Iscariot, of course, who rose as high as he rose and who fell as low as he fell. Nothing can take away, however difficult it is for us to take in and however shocking it is to take in, he was one of the twelve. He sat with the Lord. He heard the Lord. He was in the Lord's company closely for three whole years. And tonight he is still in his own place where the Lord told him that he would go, having hung himself because he loved money himself more than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it comes to Gehazi, because we'll see in a minute his problem was money too. He loved money and he loved the things that money got. He loved the things of the world. We can't help but make the parallel, make the connection. It's a reminder to us that loving money is a serious matter. As the Lord Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is an Aramaic term for wealth. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now this is a call to all of us. And it's obviously a call to me. It's a call to me. It wouldn't be right for me to preach this to you as though you were in danger, but I wasn't in danger. I mean, if Gehazi's in danger, I'm in danger. We're all in danger. Who is it that we serve? As Paul said, take heed. Any man who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. And of course, there's the call to all of us to make our calling and our election sure. And we've always got to make sure that our connection uh, with Christ is a living one. It's not enough to be connected to a church, lots of people think it is. It absolutely is not. It's not enough to be closely connected to other Christians. It's good to be, but it's not enough. Like I said a few weeks ago, you'll never get into heaven on the coattails of another Christian. You've got to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ himself in faith and in love. Anything short of that will one day be exposed and it will be found out. But he had privileges. So do you, and so do I. Well then, let's turn to the sin. And I suppose the obvious question to ask in a way is, what is it that went wrong with this man? What went wrong? How, can a, how could a man who was where he was end up where he ended up? Maybe it's not so much a case of what went wrong as what was actually wrong, because perhaps it was wrong for a long, long time. My guess is that it probably was. But it only comes to light with the trial and the crisis. Sometimes, you know, there are sins in people's lives that just don't come to light at all in this world. 
Paul said to Timothy that some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. In other words, their lives just become an open book and uh, it all spills out and there you have it, that's the truth. But he says some men's sins follow afterwards. By that he means that, that they've been and they've gone and then afterwards, perhaps at the day of judgment itself, I think that's what the reference is to, there they come out. The secret life or the double life that was lived. So some men's sins are evident, preceding them to judgment. What that means is that the sins are committed, they're out in the open here, and they are crying out to God for redress. And God starts to deal with them in this life by way of chastisement. He'll deal with them completely at the bar of judgment. The sins that follow after are different. Nobody knows. Maybe it's uncovered years later, although you always have to be wary about that. But they certainly follow after to the judgment seat of God. But when they do come out in this life, it's usually a crisis that brings them out. That was true with Judas Iscariot. We saw that a few weeks back. You'll remember in that sacred house where that sacred act was performed by Mary, when her heart was full of love, she poured out that precious ointment, And suddenly Judas' covetousness came out. Now, significantly, people didn't recognise it for what it was, but nonetheless it spilled out. And, and the Lord started to deal with Judas Iscariot for his sin there and then. What a waste this is, he said. Similar to what Gehazi really is saying here as he's watching the Syrian go, what a, what a wasted opportunity this is. What a waste. It's Naaman's wealth here that brings out the hidden secrets of Gehazi's heart. It takes his heart to light. The fact is that he's a greedy man. He's greedy. And of course, along with that, he's a liar. And as we'll see, he's a consummate liar. I mean, he, he really knows how to lie. And the lying and the greed, perhaps unsurprisingly, go together. But his primary sin is greed. Now that's a sin that appears amazingly often in the Bible. You see, it's one of these things that you probably think isn't all that serious. You know, we have our ways of ranking sins. And there's no doubt as our catechisms remind us that some sins are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Um, but we don't possibly put greed all that high. I don't know, maybe some people do. People rank sins differently. But it's amazing how often it appears... And how often it appears as the thing that damns people. Judas Iscariot stole from the disciples' funds. Balaam preached for money. Money was his motive in preaching. Ahab, you'll remember, stole some precious clothing and other things uh, from Jericho when the Lord had said, not to take anything that belonged to the city. There was a reason for that. I mean, God wants, wanted everybody to know that the reason Jericho uh, was condemned as a city was because of its godlessness. And, but, but if someone was going to take money out of it, they would say that that was the motive. That was the motive. So Achan himself was blackening the name of God's people. He was blackening Israel. He was blackening the character of God. But he stole, you see. He stole because he wanted. And he, wanted, he was greedy. He saw something that was very expensive and he had to have it. And of course, when, you, when you're thinking like that, you, you rationalize it all. You say, who cares? I mean, this city's finished. This city's devoted to destruction. What harm does it make if I take these beautiful Babylonian garments that are worth thousands of pounds? Who cares? I'll have them. But of course, it's all a lot more important than we realise. And uh, this greed can take different forms, and there are different forms, uh, different words depending on the form it takes. For example, if you're desiring what other people have, usually it's called covetousness. And the Tenth Commandment tells you that you must not covet your neighbour's house. It then goes on to say you mustn't covet your neighbour's wife, which, of course, David did. 
um, or your neighbour's servant. Or Some people have asked, why, why is the house before the wife? The answer to that is very simple. It's because, thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's house, is, is the leading statement. In other words, everything that belongs to the house. And then it begins to specify, first of all, the wife, and then the servant, and then the animals, and so on. But you mustn't covet. You mustn't have this inordinate desire to have what belongs to somebody else. If your greed takes the form of just wanting money, it's usually called in the English avarice. The avaricious person is just greedy for money. You want money. You want more money. And that in itself can can go in two directions. Some avaricious people are also miserly. The word miser is related to the word miserable. And uh, it's not difficult to work out why. Because the miser is miserable. That's why. The miser is a person who's so keen on money that he just can't really let it go. Um, It's the sin of the hoarder. The hoarder is never quite sure how best to spend the thing. He's always afraid, or she's always afraid, that if I spend it there, maybe I can't spend it there. uh, He never quite manages to fix on a thing. So... The the value of the things that he desires is gradually transferred to the coin which can purchase it. And at the end of the day, he may sit in the cold with a torch and with no fire, but with loads and loads and loads of money, living frugally, but loving money. You can never really judge who loves money by how exactly they live. You can't, because the sin of a miser reminds us of that. And, of course, at the opposite end of the spectrum is the profligate person, or the prodigal person. That's the squanderer. The person who wants to convert it into stuff as quickly as possible. It's interesting that when Elisha rebukes Gehazi here, when Gehazi comes back, all he's got are the talents of silver. Well, I'm saying all he's got. These are six-figure sons. He's got that plus the expensive clothing, which is worth thousands upon thousands of pounds as well. But Elijah says to him, is this a time, he says, is this a time to think about olive groves and to think about vineyards and to think about all these things, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? That tells you that these were the things that were going on in Gehazi's mind. And Elijah knows that because God has told him that. It's not that he just discerned that, but God has told him. You know, Gehazi had plans. This is what he wants to achieve in life. He's obviously not going to stick around with Elijah anyway. Um, There's not as much in it as he thought there would be. And he really wants what the world can give. He's got his plans. I'd love to have olive groves. I'd really want to have a vineyard. I'd really want to have servants and so on. All that's going on in his head. And the sad thing is that while a miracle is taking place, and when someone from far away is coming to know the Lord, this is all Gehazi is really thinking about. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So is he. What is it that takes up our minds anyway? Here we are in the house of God worshipping tonight. Uh, Your own mind should be full of the word of God. It should be full of where you stand before God. But it's possible that your mind is on your own business. Just like this. The modern equivalent of the vineyards and the olive groves. Whatever that is. Is that where your mind and your heart is? Just like the man of whom we read earlier. In the middle of a sermon he said to Jesus, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Remember, we looked at that a few weeks ago. And the Lord said... Whatever the inheritance, he says, I'm not the arbitrator over that. No one made me a judge or an arbitrator, but I'm a judge of your heart. And the fact that you can ask such a question in the middle of the sermon says to me that you need to take heed and beware of covetousness. If your brother is guilty of it by keeping what he shouldn't be keeping, you're guilty of it because it's all you can think about in the middle of a sermon. And the Lord who searches the heart knows tonight where your heart is. Knows if it's open or closed. He knows if 
You're taking this to yourself if you're allowing it to search, search your soul out or maybe it's washing all over you because there's something else preoccupying your mind. And here's Gehazi, instead of rejoicing in this man coming to a knowledge of God, he's only wondering, how can I get his money? How, how can I get the money? Man, he's dazzled with the gold. He's dazzled with the silver and he's dazzled with the clothing. Ah, we're not so far removed from that as we'd like to think we are. Perhaps none of us are as far removed as we'd like to think we are. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that none of us likes to think of this as being all that important. Say something like covetousness. You say, well, it's not murder. It's not... uh, it's not adultery. It's, it's not bearing false witness. It's, it's not idolatry. And then you catch yourself because the Bible calls it exactly that. Paul tells us that covetousness, he says, is idolatry. That brings the tenth commandment right back to the first. Isn't that interesting? The first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. And you follow the commandments round and you come to the tenth, which says, Thou shalt not covet. And Paul says that that coveting is idolatry. To set your heart on worldly things, especially money, to such a degree that it comes before God, it's idolatry. And he says, Let no idolatry things think that you can inherit the kingdom of God. No. This, of course, is is an important question because how can we know if we're guilty of it? Abraham was rich. Lot was rich. Job was very, very godly and very, very rich. What's the test? And this is important because there's none of us here that doesn't want to do well. It's not wrong to to have a good house or, or, or a good car or something, but we all know that not wrong to have a good wage. I mean, we all want to know if we're genuine before God. We'd like to know what is it that makes me a covetous person. Well, I think personally that, that the best test for that is to ask yourself a question. Am I prepared to break God's law to get things or to keep things? To get money or to keep money? To get possessions and to keep possessions. Am I prepared to break God's law to do it? Now, depending on how you think about God's law, you're probably going to say, well, I'm not prepared to. Well, let's think about that for a second. Let me take three tests. The first test I would take is the test of the tithe. How happy are you to give a tenth of what you earn to God? Malachi said, this people robbed me. The people said, how do we rob you? And God said, in your tithes and in your offerings. Take the test of charity. It's, it's interesting that the rich man in Luke 16 represented a Pharisee who lived well, very wealthy, fared sumptuously every day, was dressed in purple, scarlet, a very expensive dye made from shellfish, really, really expensive. And uh, the people thought him blessed and favoured by God because of his wealth. Famously, he walked past Lazarus at his gate, day in, day out. Passed him on the way out, passed him on the way in. Passed him on the way out, passed him on the way in. And who knows what harsh words he had in his mind for that beggar at the gate. A lazy, good for nothing, or whatever. But he, he couldn't be bothered giving to Lazarus at his gate. If, if your wealth and mine is amassed for ourselves, are we really putting God before it? If we cannot give. Uh, that parable of the rich man, of course, was who had been rewarded by God, not rewarded by God, but... Um, granted by God such a a, a bountiful return on his 
on his sowing, there was such a harvest, he said, well, what can I do now? And he said, I'll build little flicker barns uh, where I can bestow all my goods. I'm going to lay up and everything for myself and I can eat, drink and be merry for the rest of my life. God obviously intervened and said, you fool. I remember reading one of the church fathers, Augustine, who had a sermon on that in the 4th century and he said that he should have looked at the open mouths of the widows and the children that were longing to be fed uh, as the barns in which he, he should have placed his excess. He should have thought that maybe God has given to me in order to be of help to others. If that thought is not in our mind, can we honestly say that our desire for things is not covetousness? Test of the tithe and the test of charity. The other test is just the test of honesty. Do I steal from others? And you say, I don't. Do you steal from others in the form of cheating them what's their actual due? It's possible even as an employer to be cheating an employee just by not really recognizing their worth for the work they do. Do I lie to increase my wealth? Do I lie to hang on to more of my wealth than I should hang on to? Again, of course, all this starts shearing close. Here, of course, Gehazi is very prepared to lie. And he's prepared to lie to get which? A sure sign that his soul is in bondage to the love of money. That reminds us, of course, of something else. That's uh, that greed is never on its own in a soul. Paul tells us that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's a better translation than the root of all evil. It's better translated as the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And how well we know that. You'll never find covetousness on its own. And one of the things that appears very often with it is a lying tongue. Greedy people are often quick to lie. Now, Gehazi's speech here gives him away. Um, certainly he can use the right words sometimes to impress people. His, his language can sometimes be religious. For example, um, in verse 20 here, he says an interesting thing. Uh, Halfway through verse 20, he says, As the Lord lives, I will run after him, and I'll take something from him. Isn't it strange that a man who's in an act of sin can use religious language? <clears throat> As the Lord lives is a form of an oath, really. And it's something that he heard his master say quite often. probably heard Elijah say, others. It's the language of godly people. He can use it. But he can use it while he's committing <coughs> sin. And the fact of the matter is that while he can say that out of one side of his mouth, out of the other side of his mouth he can say that my master has spared this Syria. That's not a very nice way of speaking about that person, is it? There is a separateness that's required of God's people. It's a careful separation from the world and its ways. It must never become something like racism, or nationalism, or anything like that. If this man's heart was right, he would have rejoiced in this Syrian coming to the knowledge of God. Even if this Syrian was a persecutor, sometimes of his own people, he would have rejoiced in the fact that he came to the Lord. Why? Because when we're Christians, we know we're all the same. And we are all the same. None of us have got anything to glory in at all. Jew or Gentile, privileged or not privileged, we're Humans who are carrying a curse, all sinful and all fallen. That's all we are. And for us to be saved is the same as for anybody to be saved. But he calls him this Syrian. He despises people. Now a Christian ought never to despise anybody. Certainly there's some moral disapproval. And we find that often in the Psalms. There's an expression of clear moral disapproval and moral distance between yourself and somebody else. 
There's the recognition too that crimes should bring their own just retribution. There's a recognition of that too. But there is never this idea of superiority. But out it comes, tumbling out of his mouth. And the lie. Three things quickly about his lying. First of all, it's skillful. And of course, I suppose a person who lies and lies and lies become practised at it. You know, he knows that unless a story is plausible, Naaman is, is going to pick up on something wrong. Naaman's a man of the world, although he's a Christian, if you understand what I mean. You don't become captain of the Syrian army without knowing how people operate. He would be suspicious of Elijah suddenly changing his mind about whether he wants these gifts or not. So you'll notice that he's very careful not to implicate Elijah directly. Elijah does want the money, but it's not for himself he wants it. It's for these two prophets who have mysteriously appeared, uh, sons of the prophets, students of divinity, you could say. He also knows that Naaman, as a new convert, is keen to show gratitude. Naaman's probably partially disappointed that he wasn't able to show the man of God, just how, how grateful he was to the man of God. He knows that. And he's quite able to play on that too. And of course he's careful enough to say that the wealth is not for himself. Perish the Lord. It's not for Elijah either. He doesn't need it. Neither do I need it. But these poor sons of the prophets, they're, they're, they're training in these difficult areas and you know they would appreciate these uh, garments and this extra help. Will you not just help us and we'll pass it on? Skillful. He also lies persuasively. I don't know if you ever noticed that Naaman has to urge him to take the second talent of silver. If he has, he's smart enough to pitch it low. He says, can we have just one talent of silver and uh, some of the garments? And Naaman says, take, take two talents of silver. So he, you're into six, seriously into six-figure sums there. Uh, he urges him. You know, doesn't really have to urge him, does he? He has it quite keen on it too. But he sees the way that godly people act, and he's quite used to people saying, Oh, no, 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 take that. Oh, I don't, I don't need that, or I don't need that. And so Naaman has to go, No, no, take it. All right, then I'll take it. Yes, you wanted it all along. It's the only reason you're running energetically following this chariot, because you want the money. It's very, very persuasive. He can imitate genuine, godly people. And he lies so effortlessly. And when he comes back, you know, the Naaman's servants are helping him with, I mean, he's got nearly a million pounds worth here. Naaman's servants come back, he, he puts all the stuff away, and he appears in front of Gehazi like he always did. <coughs> of course, Elijah says to him unexpectedly, in the Hebrew it's very stark, whence Elijah? Koas, Kosahaniku. Where did he come from? Nowhere, he says. Quick as that. Ah, nowhere. I haven't been anywhere in particular. Lie upon lie upon lie, sin upon sin upon sin. Sin multiplies. You know that, you know that yourself, don't you? When when one sin gets a hold, ah, here it goes. And it grows and it grows. And especially when lying gets you, I never forget uh, how my own father taught me when I was very young, that any sin can be dealt with except lying. You know yourself that if, if there's a Christian, let's say, who's fallen astray in some kind of way, let, let's say they're taken up with, with drink or drugs or something, you can deal with them until they start lying to you. Because when they lie to you, you haven't a clue what you're dealing with. And that's why the person who goes deep into lying is a person that's very hard to rescue from. And you know, lying plus covetousness is a dangerous combination. For the soul. And Gehazi is suddenly in a web of his own making. And I'll tell you something else too, because these sins are bad enough in themselves, but there are aggravating factors. We speak sometimes of mitigating factors. Things that make sins maybe less than they appear. There are also aggravating factors, and this is full of aggravating factors. You'll notice, first of all, that Gehazi has misrepresented God's people. He's misrepresented Elijah and he's misrepresented the two sons of the prophet. 
I'm sure Naaman could be forgiven for saying, well, I wonder why they really wanted that, as he's making his own way home to Syria, saying, I wonder why they wanted that much. Why give it to two students who are in, in training for preaching the word of God? Did they really need hundreds of thousands of pounds worth? You'll notice, too, that he abused the ministry that God had given him. He abused that as well. He's using it as a cloak for evil. It's a bad thing to use a religious office as a cloak for your own evil or self-aggrandizement. And he even risks the faith of a new convert. I think that's the reason that Elijah was unwilling to take anything in the first place. Naaman isn't a man who... He's not a Jew. He's not been used to things like tithes and offerings and things of that kind. On another occasion, in fact, in chapter 4, you find Elijah receiving gifts from people who had brought gifts. But here he doesn't take them. This is like Paul, you see. Paul could say that the one who preaches of the gospel should live of the gospel. But whenever he went into virgin territory, he didn't take a penny for anything. Nothing. In case it would be misunderstood and misinterpreted. And I think that's Elijah's reason here for taking nothing at all. He didn't even say, I'll take a little. He just took nothing at all. Because the last thing he wants to do for this young Christian is to mislead him into thinking that somehow Elijah is interested in money. Now the Lord, of course, says to us, um, in connection with those who are little children in the kingdom, woe to those who offend them. Offences will come, but woe to those who make children stumble. I remember once a Christian started following, and there was another uh, believer who tried to get this Christian to go to a pub. Because this Christian thought, it's okay to go to a pub. And he seemed to be spending strength in trying to get this person to think it was okay to go to a pub too. Is, is that really, is, is that really how you're supposed to deal with people who come to a knowledge of the Lord? Trying to get them to think that anything you may mistakenly have come to believe is right is okay for them too. Watch where you lead them. Watch where you take them. Watch how you instruct them. Bring them to the highest and the best things all the time. Not to anything doubtful or confusing, or certainly not to anything that may be destructive for their souls. That's why Elijah says, keep, keep what you've got, because I don't want it. It's not why I've healed you or been a part of your healing. That's why Elisha says to Gehazi, is this time to receive olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen, which is what you've had your eye? Is it the time for all that? No. The Lord Jesus says that those who make his own new converts stumble, he says it would be better for them if a donkey millstone were put around their neck and they were cast into the midst of the sea. Donkey. For some reason that word mulos is not translated in any version as far as I'm aware of. I don't know why. Because it's not a millstone. It's a mulos holocaust. A donkey millstone. A giant one. The figure is of course a bit of an absurdity. The, the largest stone you can find, the Lord says, put it around the neck and cast the man into the midst of the sea. Be gentle with young converts. So his greed and his lies are aggravated by his circumstance. Now friends, <clears throat> if this is yourself, no, it might not be greed and it might not be lying. Whatever it is, is it you? Is it growing? Is it getting more and more of a hold of you? Lying itself. Could it be getting such a hold of you that you're even creating a parallel world for yourself in which you think that what you're saying is actually true? You know, there are people like that. Our lying, like your covetousness, will eventually condemn us. The rest of this, friends, eh, speaks for itself. When Elijah says, um, where did you come from? He says, of course, Nowhere in particular. But of course, Elijah, Elijah knows where he's been. He knows where he's been. 
and he knows what he's done. Sometimes liars don't realise that people do sometimes to see through them. He could effectively say, you know, the Shunammite woman knew who you were before I did. She was right. And this only shows what you really were. Whatever we keep hidden in this life will one day appear. As Jesus said, what is spoken in secret shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Um, everything will be revealed. And at the judgment seat of Christ, it's almost like as Elijah did to Gehazi, where have you come from? What have you been doing? What's your life been like? And you know, such will be the consciousness of God's holiness and purity that our usual lies and evasions will just freeze in our lips. We can easily pass ourselves off to others and say, well, I'm just this and I'm just that and I'm just the next thing. It won't do, friends, before God. If Elisha knows the heart of this man, then what about the Lord himself? Before whose eyes all things are naked and opened. Where have you come from? What life have you lived? What will you say? What will you say? Your works might never be seen on this earth. People might praise you when you die. But have your works gone before you to the judgment seat? Will your works follow you to the judgment seat? One thing sure, your sin will find you out. We cannot sin with impunity. Get your sins dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ even tonight or else have God deal with your sins in yourself. Let us pray. Lord of God, we pray to take to heart the evil of sin and its danger. And uh, to consider carefully our own latter end. Grant us your mercy and your grace. In Christ's name, Amen. Uh, let's close <coughs> singing in Psalm 19, and at verse 10. Psalm 19, at verse 10. speaks of uh, the word and the commandments of God are more precious, more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. And in verse 11 they warn us how we should frame our lives. And in verse 12, let's search ourselves because who can his errors understand? Cleanse thou me within from secret faults. Thy servant keep from all presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are sins that we think we can just do with impunity and that God doesn't really care. Okay, four stanzas, 10 to 13. Let's stand to sing. <laughs> Oh,
Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.